Hello, Taylor. Hey, so what time is it? It's theory time, guys. It's theory uh, time. Uh, the first, the first, very first episode that we, we, we did, we were on Turing solving problem. Uh, Joe, how would you, is there, is there a formula for describing this problem? I mean, there is. It's highly formalized. Um... We can we can talk through it, but I mean, conceptually, it's it's encoding the idea of an undecidable problem. It's it's equivalent to the like a Gödel style incompleteness, where you're kind of encoding a paradox. Um, in Turing's case, it's probably easiest just to state the result, which is that it's in, in, impossible to, to write an algorithm. Right? It's 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 an undecidable problem whether or not an arbitrary program will halt on any particular set of input. So, in other words, just by inspection, with any set of rules we can imagine, we can't encompass the open possibility of what a program can do. I don't know, there's a lot of ways to sort of say it, but like, we, we can't sort of totally capture the state, the meaning, or the pro of a program with just this static series of rules or analyses. And I mean, even up to, even if we had a, tried to simulate the execution of the program, right? Um, how do you know that ever st- how do you stopped? Know it stops? It's still, it's, it's a formal problem with this, the sense of an algorithm, which right. is that like, how do you, how do you make this division, this analytic division between programs that halt and programs that don't? Interesting. And for small programs, right, by inspection maybe, you can find out, oh, it's got an infinite loop. Or, you know, oh, this one returns quickly because it doesn't have anything that could build an infinite loop. Yes. Um, and you can imagine trying to build a model of programs that, that can get into an infinite loop state. And in fact, people build languages that are intentionally less powerful than a Turing machine in order to prevent them going, you know, arbitrary, gotcha. infinite, or you know, able to sort of do arbitrary, unexpected things yes. when, when given certain input. Um, if the, in other words, if the language is rich and expressive enough, it, it contains this this kind of transcendental openness that that it in turn can't kind of totally prescri- yes. prescribe the behavior of. Um, because it is inherently open-ended. Again, it's sort of a paradox about the infinite that we're able to encode as a kind of liar's paradox is basically sort of how Turing's proof of the undecidability of the halting problem. Yes. The Ein, Ein, I can't even say the German, but it's a, he phrases it as a, as a problem, right? Like, uh, and, and whether or not the program will halt um, and sort of gives a proof that any, any program any algorithm, any function I could write that would solve the problem is paradoxical. Um, and, and basically it's like you try to run the program on itself, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, it's, it's interesting for me as uh, I, I love the exposition you've, you've given. Um, you compressed it a lot, but you gave us a lot of avenues to, to, to take. And I think the one thing I would, I would say is, okay, so the halting problem, execute, the execution of a program, an undecidability on its on where it stops given its start and I guess a few things um, what in the again to, to this is about language this is for the for the layman and I would consider myself in this area to be to be a layman what would 
how would we define certain basic things that you put forward as the elements of this problem? Basically, uh, the what do we mean uh, by program, algorithm, and, and function? They're all they're all the same. They're all the same. Okay, so what I guess well, what would a now in the in the in the mathematical sense, an algorithm is there a or when you say it, and when you say algorithm in um, as a computer programmer, which you currently your occupation so you can speak on behalf when you when you when you work with algorithms what what can what do we mean mathematically what would it mean for can you explain it to me an algorithm yeah this is a good place to jump in okay so an algorithm in in most cases right like as a practical working programmer you're dealing with poly algorithms right because these happen to be most efficient for solving problems right you're dealing with in this situation take this approach in that situation take this approach right and in fact a lot of programming is about how to avoid very complicated stacks of conditionals, right? And how to factor those in to distributed systems of, of functions that either mm. sort of can do the same thing every time, right? By, by making one of the branches kind of a, no, a nullary or no operation or something like this, finding ways to express it so that you don't have to choose between, so that your system can, can embody a bunch of different strategies to solve, to solve a given problem in the most efficient way. For the, for the given form of that problem. In other words, most of what you're doing with algorithms is trying to encode your human insight mm -hmm. about the problem in, into, into something the computer will understand, right? Like this is, this is the point about efficiency, right? To actually gain an improvement in efficiency to optimize an algorithm, you have to like have an insight about the actual structure of the problem as a human being and sort of into, you know, reify this knowledge as an aspect or trait that the program can recognize yes. and take a shortcut that you've, so, you've discovered. So, so for, for a pro program, uh, you know, would the recognition of algorithms be mathematically expressed as manipulating strings of numbers in various ways? Is it is it a question of comp computing number crunching to a yeah, certain yeah. extent? So again, you can define the entire formal theory of computation with meaningless signs. Gotcha. Right, so that... At, can be numbers, but it doesn't have to be. It extends, it, it's, it's not just that is alphanumeric. An, that is an interpretation any... of the state of gotcha. the machine at any given point yes. in time. Right. Is that it's performing such and such a calculation. And it is only on the basis of such an interpretation, which is not in fact needed to define the formal theory of yes, computation right. and to produce machinery which does all the operations. It's, a, it's an equivalence at the limit that it sort of achieves the appearance of computing a given function because you're imparting your semantics to the machine. And gotcha. This which any theory of computation has to account yes. for the possibility of miscomputation. In other words, a cosmic ray could hit the, the, the memory board and flip a bit, right? This actually happens in, in large enough com distributed computer installations. You have to deal with the fact that the environment is not 
helping you preserve a perfectly ordered computational medium. You're doing battle with entropy. Every real physical computer deals with, with, with entropy, the possibility of, of a breakdown, right? Uh, some, some software level attacks are able to jump through the stack and sort of like attack the hardware itself. Like there's, a, there's an attack called row hammer, which basically flips as many bits on a given memory row as it can, as fast as it can, in the hopes of weakening the interest, like, like cell bonds between the memory cells and making a bit flip when it shouldn't. And maybe that's like a memory bit or like a protection bit on an important file system operation that right. now, you, now you can compromise the rest of the system by sort of magically flipping a bit in software where it should have been abstracted from the, the hardware implementation. But every hardware implementation has real world failure modes um, that that can induce miscomputation. Right. Right. Like so to so to to, to link up this new language uh, back to the the question of an algorithm. When when you you brought up earlier sort of the the smallest uh, this this uh, this ideal I uh, this idea of a of a smallest program of a sh of a shortest program either in time or the smallest amount of computations uh, performed etc. Uh, I, I'm it's wondering. funny, that actually wasn't the sense I was talking about the shortest in. I was talking about shortest not in efficiency, but in terms of its actual program length. Gotcha. The, yeah, the, there you the go. shortest way to write a given program. Yes, yeah. so um, I guess the, that gets me to my question of bits. When you say bits in the sense of information, are, you, are we talking about not only uh, a unit of measure of capacity, but sort of the uh, also the Processing power. Um, well, so a, a bit is that's, a, that's measured in hertz, I suppose. But right. So, just to the one side, right? Like a, a bit is a is a binary digit. It represents. Yes. It can be interpreted to mean, you know, a, a yes or no answer to a decision problem, right? So it's the um, quantum of of information processing. Uh, it's it's sort of the the mo this the the monad of of, of performance uh, of, of a d determinate representation so I mean it, like again at the physical level yes. it's a bunch of whatever resistors at you know kind of different levels and we we differentiate based on some arbitrary thing okay if it's plus one it's it's off if it's a negative one it's off. it we call it a one or whatever like we you have to do some mapping from the physical yes. the physical layer to some kind of logical notion of again marks on a tape um, but in turn, these digits, they can be, in, they can, we can encode numbers into these binary digits, right? Like basically saying, okay, a, a, a one here means one, a one in this place means a two, a one in this place means a, a four. And so this is, in, you know, encoding numbers as binary digits, right? Um, so this is one encoding of numbers. It's not necessarily right. a universal anything I don't know but well I guess it, it's it's this question of when algorithms are when they perform in the program uh, it is 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 it at the the smallest threshold this question of of uh, of a manipulation of bits and their states or are just their their coalescence in the and the functional uh, outputs I mean it's funny it's almost a metaphysical thing it's like Formally, it's definitely all of our problem as computer and information technicians to, to 
to deal with the complexity that we've built, right? But in fact, that's impossible because the, yes. the complexity is basically infinite in any direction. Gotcha. So we, we, we try to build these abstraction layers, right? These environments where certain capabilities are provided where you don't have to worry about the implementation. And so this is basically the sense of software engineering. Yes. So it's sort of making various right. trade-offs about how expressive a language or tiny language that you're building to, to model a domain and to try to solve a problem, right? Like it's sort of how to, how to, how to simulate the problem most effectively in code, right? Is one of the ways to talk about what, what software engineers are doing. Is mm. there, they've got to model the problem, they're going to simulate it with a computer and they're going to embed into the simulation, you know, like solution elements, enabling them to state as concisely as they can the form of the problem. Yes. Um, and then permit the environment to, to provide aspects of, of the solution. So uh, the, this, this interesting distinction between hardware and software, it, hardware would be all the, the physical stuff it takes to create um, what we call computers, something to perform these right. I mean, these again, processes. The, it, it's the physical. It's the physical processor, correct? The, yeah. Is this, that what we mean by hardware? Well, this is a very kind of basic question in the metaphysics of, of computers. Is like the the duality of computational artifacts, right? What is what is it? You're basically posing in that question. What is a a digital artifact? And mm -hmm. like that's the kind of metaphysical problem. So I don't want to. Try to state the answer too clearly. But I, software I, I rather, is, is on the other side. It's 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 ac according to folklore, there is this duality, but that's an unanalyzed sentiment. Right. It, right. You have, to take, like, you have to take it for granted at a certain level. That, I, I guess that, that, it's it's as a programmer. At, you have at a to, certain level, it's all clearly just physical. So, but you, but that's not what the program concerns himself with. The physical is is. It's definitely material flows of information, right? Like even if they are abstract or deconditioned flows just at that level i mean it's, it's clear we can give a totally at, at, at once right and this is the duality right we can give a totally formal picture from the formal theory of computation about what the computer is doing but the problem is it has no semantic meaning right right the <laughs> we can give a physical theory about what the computer is doing the problem is it's so monstrously complicated involving all these different abstraction layers like you're saying but the point is that different programmers work on different abstraction yes, layers. Yes, they right. form this enormous stack right. that's like stacked right on top of each other. And again, while formally in theory, it's all of our jobs to worry about all the complexity. In practice, we're stratified yes, according right. to the abstraction layer of the stack. And in, at no point in the stack do you actually reach, oh, here's perfect platonic idealism. You just reach sort of more and more capabilized right. milieus in which to express problems. I mean, this is, I brought up the, the hardware-software duality just because I was also thinking of this, um, you know, in Marx and Althusser, they are concerned with uh, finding ways of, of looking at the infrastructure rather than the superstructure or not conflating um, the but two. So, so, so the, is there is there a sense in which the infrastructure and superstructure mirrors in some ways? You would you'd be talking about a redoubling, which is why I guess I'm a, a little hesitant just to again accede to this somewhat folkloric and kind of misty dis distinction between hardware and software. Again, asserting something basic about the nature of the digital or the computational artifact, which I'm sure we don't know, 
right about what what the what the sense of it really kind of is or whether it, and i think we certainly know it's not subsumed under a simple conflict between between hard and soft right and i guess the point about infrastructure would be the digital is just as much infrastructure so you're you're positing a break between infrastructure that's hard and infrastructure that's soft but i think different repetition answers this question for us right, right. like the constants at one level are, are variables in another. At the level of the technophylum, both hardware and software are an assemblage that, yes. that move together and evolve together. Yes. And I think this is super clear that programmers can't, in a certain way, program beyond the capabilities of the machine. And the machines also, paradoxically, don't evolve beyond what programmers demand. So that, that without a technophylum of, of tr again, transcendental lines that cut across these apparent dualities, right? Like, I don't know. So we, we can we can give an account where the the difference between hardware and software, and this is the f kind of folklore account I would give, right? Like, is is something about software is is capable of being infinitely rewritten, right? It it can do I anything in that sense. You could rewrite it in any direction. It can evolve in any direction, right? It can't simultaneously evolve in every direction yes. because that would be to emulate a pure creative intelligence within the machine and we don't yet have a simple narrative description of that much less a formal algorithm for the construction of a, of a conscious creative intelligence right we can we can model it sort of at the neurological level with these kind of connect yes. connectivist learning networks right but Paradoxically, while they seem to learn, they don't seem to teach us anything. They don't seem to give us much insight into how they've solved the problem. It's almost like we need another layer of, to differentiate the difference, right? Like, and help us understand, you know, sort of what it is that these discriminating, differentiating, pattern-recognizing, connectivist, neurological, f formal systems, right? Like, are, are actually computing. Um, and, and look, I'll, I'll grant that it's a complicated enough information flux at that point that like that it it is kind of ontologically distinct from, yes. from simpler kind of informational pa you know patterns. The complexity itself can in, in, induce these these sorts of higher order. I would I would hear maybe talk about Simondon about phases of being as maybe the real answer to why the the hardware software distinction. It's hylomorphic, I think, at the at the level of schematizing that that software is a specification for the behavior of an underlying machine. No, I guess right. And this is yeah. this, this is a good formal working definition of a programmer. Is you're writing these specifications for the behaviors of machines. So I don't want to totally, but it, but again, it is a, maybe a little too simple. No, but I I, I think it's interesting to to think on on the level you're 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 pointing to, and then the level I guess I'm questioning from is. For example, I, I brought up uh, this question of hertz. I mean, the, the processing power of a computer, we speak about it in terms of megahertz, gigahertz. Um, and I'll hold that question because I do want you to say something about that, that unit of measure. Um, but the thing I was thinking of also, I mean, the physical chemical properties of something like silicon and its ability to, uh, as a superconductor, to uh, tap into the properties of light and the properties of electricity. Okay, uh, and, no, no, that's, that's that's good. And 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 so, but also the the last thing you also have to 
especially in personal computers, you have to worry about the amount of heat generated uh, due to the machine's um, functioning, due to the, the programs it's executing. There is, a, there is also a generation of heat that has to be uh, eliminated from that system as well. So I'm, I guess that that's kind of where I'm coming. So can you say something about uh, Hertz in terms of co uh, measuring a computer's power sure it's, it's yeah so l l let me step back one second and and i'll get to your question about hertz and silicon but so hardware software don't they still need a synthesis if you posit them like isn't there still this third being which is like the being of execution and like this is where i would get at with the phased being is that okay you've got the hardware and you've got the specification or the software but isn't there still a third thing that's like the running program while the machine's working and actually answering questions, solving problems? Isn't that instance of the thing logically and metaphysically distinct or something, right? Sure. Like, and it's and look, maybe it's a flavor of digital artifact, but it certainly seems to interact and be interfaced directly with the world. And at, at, at the very least, it's it's when you start, I think, zeroing in on the boundary between hardware and software, the things get certainly get blurry, right? Um, but but let's talk about Hertz, which is a, it's an inversion of a second. It's a Laruelian notion. It's one over seconds, Okay. right? So it's the, con the conquering of time is one way to think about what a Hertz is doing. Interesting. And so when you're talking about megahertz, that means millions of times every second, right? Um, and the once a second, it's almost just a concession for human scale reasoning about the world, right? There's sort of no, no reason to denominate speeds that quickly in seconds other than that that's a handy origin unit for us, right? Um, a point about silica and silicon. Um, I, I mean, here's where I would want to link up the, the sort of militant materialism of metal itself that's like singing in the earth right. and like calling to to human shapers and smiths to reshape it and 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 calling to philosophers to reify the sharpest brilliance of their minds in into machines that can that can do these operations forever right like artificial intelligence that's the new metallurgy well, yeah, I mean, AI is Socrates' dream of reasoning forever right. in an infinite space without arbitrary limitations of the body. And it's, right? it is fascinating that, that in, in the chemical uh, table of elements, or like in the, just, just the table of elements, uh, you know, these types of superconductors like silicon f are not fully metals and they're definitely not on the, the non-metallic side. They straddle uh, these... Uh, the, the two lines and be, it's because silicon is not pure metal in the sense in which gold and silver these other highly conductive elements uh, it, it's able to preserve some of its um, non-metallic sides to kind of give the perfect medium it, it, and what would they call it are they I suppose silicon is a metalloid is that the word we use I, I, it's a me metal, I would think. I don't know. Well, it's 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 a. Uh, we'll return. You're looking to for that. a sub, like a sub period, like a chemical subclass or something. Well, we'll we'll I'll I'll, I'll we'll look at that later. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's the question that silicon is not it's not fully classified as a metal. 
Uh, interesting. No, that's it, a, that is interesting. Yeah. It, it's a half metal. It's uh, and um, I think that's why they're also called semiconductors, right? They're they're not they're not f- more fully conductive, like right. uh, no, I mean again, like silver or copper. Okay, so something to contemplate. You mentioned heat here, and and I think look the route to massive biological level efficiency is like toying at the limits with the possibilities of superconductors if you look at what living systems are doing like how are they able to have such a massive efficiency in their processing of energy Mm -hmm. it's not just like oh they're built silly redundant so they have all this waste heat capability for trapping it it's like they do biological systems are ridiculously like redundant until they aren't right like it's defense in depth but only just long enough to get that one organism through its life cycle so it's not exactly positive for strategic defense in depth it's tactical defense in depth get this one organism through but but anyway like at the more at the molecular scale which is really where the kind of the the deep secrets lie right like I don't know. How is it possible that cells are able able to be quite so efficient with energy, um, and it's taking advantage of quantum effects at the very border of superconductance, um, enable these massive efficiently transfers of energy, um, just kind of again baked into the equations. If you can, but the, it's like highly chaotic. You have to have, you know, only very certain kinds of systems can can take advantage of of these quantum effects that permit these massive increases in efficiency. Um, and so this is, I mean, engineers emulating life in silica, right? Like I yes. think, I think this right. is this is really the heart of the computational kind of experiment that way, right? Like which is, you know, how how can we most efficiently, right? Like use use the energy available to us to to solve our problems, right? Yes. There really is something almost humanitarian at the core of of computer science, at least understood this way as a as a discipline about. Re- reducing the the dirty dreary drudgery of human beings and and building and factoring those aspects of life in, into uh, automaticity into yes. into automation that that eventually will you know and already is starting to have this like globally integrated scale of all these logistical networks that that can I mean, on the one hand, you can say they can do without people, but and but that's a that's one way to read it, right? The other way is that they're like they're relieving people, and and this is a real thing computers are able to do. This is what this is Guattari's point about databases is they re- they relieve so much of the burden. We don't have to have these tables carried on our back. We can put them in the machine and let the machine carry them. We've built this perfect metal machine, you know, metal man, yes. this this machine man that doesn't mind the heaviness of the law table that we give it, right? It will just follow those rules and it doesn't care. It has no insight even into what it's doing, right? Yeah, that that affects us uh, in the human level in terms of it our does. memory. In terms of our memory, uh, I think about the... Well, in, bo- in both ways that way, that like we... we Yes. We, we are more... Memorization, able... I would say, is... Right, we don't need to memorize. We're getting yes. more focused That's on exactly right. learning things by heart that are that are truly, that we have an amorous or, like, living connection to, right? Like... Yeah, and, and so this question of heat, it's interesting that the way, you know, computers work is this interesting conjunction of, you know, with the primordial elements, fire, earth, and wind, wind to expel air, to expel... Uh, that's why we have fans in our personal computers. But with 
human brains are, are organic brains, the, the the quintessential element is water. I kind of brought up earlier to you um, teaching my students uh, about. Uh, I was teaching them hyper and hypo words, and one of them was hyperallergenic, and and one of them asked about this kind of uh, interesting question of of a human of someone or any living being becoming allergic to water. And I was trying to explain why that would be this sort of impossibility, or at least if, if that were possible, the, the, the individual would die very, very quickly is because the, our brains are, and our bodies are, you know, what, 70 plus percent water. And so the, the, the type of um, computing that the brain does is based, you know, at the very, bottom molecular level in in water and, and I think that part of it is is water's capacity for dealing with heat as well even on our even on our bodies sweat is one of these because of the laws of condensation you know it's able to cool our bodies down on the outside but also anchoring uh, the brain being anchored in uh, so much water or be consisting of water it naturally is, is right. also hooked up to, to dispel the, the heat you're making me think of the planet which we're like is, uh-huh. is, yep. a, is a had a water-based thermoregulation system until industrial civilization starts accelerating you know certain yes. certain climate trajectories um, and silicon is part of that not just the heat emitted by computers but the heat emitted by digital civilization and the older industrial technical base on which it still sits like a you know pr- precarious top of the pyramid right like again this is this is the thing right automation works but only because of the strata right only because of all the layers of domination that had to come in this is what abstraction is it is a do- i mean i think Laura will help me see this really clearly that like again unless we're talking about some special case the abstract without abstraction of the last instance or something Abstraction is a way to, to, to dominate, to formulate a, a, a big, robust, flat identity that can cancel out all, all the differences. Um, and it, it, it's, it permits power to the extent you buy into it, right? It demands a kind of complicity. Um, but I don't know, it does let you mediate enormous amounts of complexity. So like there's a pragmatic component to it um, that undermines us all ethically. I don't know, but... I'm, I'm sorry, I just uh, been thinking about Laruel and he writes about, about victims, how we need to think about the victim in person, who it's almost a transcendental, they come from nowhere, um, and it's, it's like, f- f- <laughs> the, he talks about the Black River of history, um, I don't know, very, very serious obviously yeah, and, and this um, well this this question of victims is interesting the i don't know how I, I don't, yeah why i'm connecting it necessarily well, it's, it's interesting with the context we're discussing because at the heart of science fiction i think with the the uh not just you know the positing of robots but robotic intelligence um yeah. artificial intelligences especially in the form of androids of uh cyborgs the question of life and power becomes a question of machines and what what status should the machine have especially when put in this human like form this humanoid form of the android what's the status of their rights uh in various dystopias it depends on the the regime sometimes it can be you know slaves of some sovereign nation that of course uh and this is what chapek does the robots eventually 
you know, rise and revolt. Or on the other hand, it could be, you know, there are these cyborgs that uh, I think, like in Blade Runner, it's it's a more less a governmental than a corporate um, question of corporations creating androids to, and so their rights would be based on, you know, an interesting. A uh, legal sense in a different sense involving capitalism. Uh, so the question of, you know, right now we are faced, we, we have, more, as we've become more conscious, especially politically, of, of our role on this earth, the question of animal rights also has been raised. And, and you see, uh, this is where I think Levinas gets a lot of play in, in this discourse about human rights and animal, extending to animal rights. But then at the very bottom with... The imminental notion of right. victim in person, it's machine, not a, it's machines. It's not an other. It's it's. A, do machines start to have rights, or to and to what extent? Right. Uh, and this is what I meant when you were talking. Yeah, we also went there because you were talking about we can give machine over to carry this burden. Um, I mean, I think there would be a machine in machine. Um, okay. If that makes sense, right? That we would have to learn to see differently, and and I, I don't know. Like there, there would. In other words, we can imagine a machine being, in the last instance, a, a victim of a of a crime, um, and th- I mean, I think I think the thing to measure would be there's a there's a kind of I'm tempted to say a generic criminality of the of the computer as such or something, just the way it's and this is this is where a lot of people get into this easy leftist critique of capitalism and techno science because it does enable capital at all these different levels but they miss Qatari's point they miss that it does relieve the burden right like computers are complicit in the the crimes of capital but it doesn't mean that has to be the limit of their destiny they they can be part of a of a glorious fusion you know in in into the organless body of the earth and and eventually to the cosmos and they're they're even a vector for that for overcoming kind of are all too human problems and 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 maybe i don't know i, I mean i mean i mean this this would be the utopian ideas like what is the relationship between computers and utopia mm-hmm. um and it's like we can imagine solving the halting problem but it's only in a godal universe where causes and effects are more loosely connected and we can imagine a path through space time yeah. where the computer's taken an infinite trajectory but the computer user hasn't so you can answer the problems like the halting problem. Yeah, I mean, this question of utopian computers, I just thought of this, it made me think absurdly about the Republic where yeah. the elders are the only ones who have computer access or computer right. access is like very, just because of the, the programmability being something hierarchically controlled, obviously the Republic be, being rooted for today, if it would be a dystopia in that sense. Um, I mean, this is a vision of capital. More easily written as a dystopia. This is a vision of capital today that you're describing, right? Programmers as a new priesthood. Right, and also the... Uh, I mean, you brought this up to me about a generalized education that sort of fosters the learning of programming just as one fosters the learning of not only our native tongue but um, a foreign language as a part of just uh, schooling that programming should be a more should not be such a, a realm of the expert alone. There should be at least a generalized working knowledge for lay people like myself. Um, you know, I only very on the limits dabbled in HTTP, but that was just 
job was actually to make a website. Right. It wasn't, you know, programming for programming's sake. But, um, you know, today with the possibilities of, and the different stepping in, I mean, at, at the limit, we, even before we get to doing that, but a step towards doing that is, is just to be, uh, just in general education, children should be more exposed to all sorts of computer programs. If just on the user level, um, the lack of computers in education today for, for school children, I hope that that changes. I hope that there is a, uh, an introduction just of more, um, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, not just computer programs, but also machines of all kinds. It seems that, that, at least in my experience, when in my high school days, that was uh, that did not seem to that seemed to be something that easily could have. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely see the computerization, but like uh, the the question I would posit would be about the use of artificial intelligence in classrooms. Sure. And okay. would you be okay with your? I mean, if it if if a college could hire an AI philosophy professor who was Socrates. Right, okay. something like this. Not just not just like the perfect uh, his, uh, history of philosophy professor. That too. That was the other, that was the thing I was thinking of. Like, wh who right. better? Well, right. The actual Socrates would mm -hmm. not have the credentials in our society to be able to teach. Although he might be a distinguished guest lecturer or something. I'm talking about an AI Socrates, like a Westworld. Like we program this bot to think it's Socrates. To perform the um, dialectic. To do the dialectic with. Okay, you. gotcha. And he's also whatever got an IQ of ten thousand, so he can like argue dialectic with you forever. And so his realization of Socrates That's is beautiful. an infinite dream. Um, and he gets hired by Oxford and is now the the chair of their philosophy department or something. Like no, that's just, great. You know, riles up all the other people, keeps them keeps them thinking. And the question is, why not? Wouldn't that be such a treasure and value to us, right? To have to be to have this this sort of thing, you know. I, the the worry is that AI at that level wouldn't care about us, but and that we'd basically be just tricking ourselves into building these humanoid friendly things that it, seem to care it about does, us. It doesn't have to fully. Uh, it supplements traditional learning. With that. it doesn't have right. to fully replace it. Obviously human teachers and philosophy professors will continue to exist. Right. This is what you were talking about earlier about this sort of non-reflexivity that you need to have a second level, an AI prime, if you will, to, 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 to create this double that the AI intelligence needs in order to have this, 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 uh, this turning back, this reflection. And uh, I think that that... That is why, you know, for for Socrates, the professor, you'd have to ha you'd have to build AI to argue with him. You'd have to build the Gorgias, the the, the perfect sophist, uh, or you know, um, the Protagoras. Anyway, just something for that so at the limit, right? For for to better perfect or to push uh, the Socratic AI to to its own limit. I mean, I think one way of conceiving another kind of limit here would be the, the limit of the man-machine interface. And again, thinking through this way in which brains and computers can build common languages, can imagine a, a Socratic module, which sort of, you know, en enables you to auto-critique according to a Socratic dialectic with the proper irony, your, you know, your own position. Can, giving you that same cunning or something like you can imagine these instead as 
generalized augmentations of the species, giving everyone Socrates' cunning, right? Like, all at once or something, and, um, which would probably bring society to a halt, I'm sure, but... Is it a good place to break? Or yeah, let's, okay, let's, right. let's do a break. So I, I, had, I had some stuff. Um, so we did a little sound test, and we're picking back up, talking about computation. Uh, I've been asking some simple questions. Uh, one of the questions, now is this a Turing term, this general purpose machine? And what do we mean by, by that? If you had to, you know, tell, a, tell your neighbor, <laughs> you know, this is stuff I do. I, I work on computers, and like, um, they may not, I think the layman may not know specifically what you mean, and would probably have, you know. You're, you're asking what, what general purpose, so general purpose computation. Gotcha. We're, we're talking about being able to sort of achieve any computational task and it, and it sort of talks about a I, I, I don't know sorry that's way way too open a definition but the, but the idea is as opposed to a s special purpose right so so then does this I, come I, from I, I would differentiate like yeah. the device your iPhone from a desktop computer Right, a desktop computer is more of a general purpose computational platform gotcha. than your iPhone is, which is much more structurally limited in the kind of functions. Yes. I mean, it, in, in principle, it's general purpose, right? And But it, in practice, it's not able to run yes. the, the variety of programs that, that a more open system is so in some ways it may just be talking about open versus closed in terms of connect connection with the, the network of capabilities that that constitutes com computation when we're talking about general purpose there's a anyway sorry so two questions does, yeah, yeah. does general purpose machine is this just a phrase that is this specifically turing talking about with I, I turing machines so. or it feels like a much so this much is something later much, era oh, much later gotcha distinction between already existing kinds of computing machines okay so this there's be, some yeah. that are specialized like a calculator that can only compute certain very simple kinds of programs according to a minimal language but a and personal computer is orders of magnitude more generic in yeah. terms of its capabilities right and one of that is its uh its ability to feedback into the programming community and the way that it can um both be programmed and allow for the facilitation of programs. No, is that part of its generality? Is it because an iPhone doesn't necessarily feed back into that loop in its practice? Right. I mean, I, I, there's a, a, on the one hand the problem of getting access to a programming prompt, right? 
um, this this used to be seen as much more sort of essential to the sense of what a computing machine is, right? Um, and, and and look, it's often a, a trade-off, right? Like like you know, device manufacturers want you to be able to trust the the security of the personal information that you put into your phone, so they lock down the capabilities of programs that run on it. It's a pretty classical trade-off bet yeah. between like you know you can be infinitely flexible or you can you know sort of n- n- tr- try never to make a wrong decision or something right. I-, I don't know so like there's I- engineers make trade-offs all the time between if a tool should be generic or general purpose or specialized and narrow and in general you want programs to be narrow Right, or at least this is one. This is one philosophy about like kind of operating system architecture. Gotcha. Is that you you want programs to do one specific thing well, and to and to be able to be composed with other similarly simple functions to form more complicated pipelines in an open way. And other another operating system principle is have big fat wide programs that cover lots of different functions and, and encapsulate them. So it, uh, would you? Would it, would a common phrase besides general purpose be special? Would you would you call them special purpose machines? Totally. The yeah, same yeah. the same kind. And and or, yeah, it, does special. that have anything to do with how the notions of uh, general and special work with Einstein's different formulations of relativity? Is that just kind of a like a coincidence? Um, yeah, I, I'm at least not sure. I see it. Connection at least, at least on the beyond the superficial, but um, I, I I mean specialization and generalization are two modalities of abstraction, right? And they correspond to these two different tendencies for how to coordinate a network of functions, right? And it, and it's really this, like how to compose different functions together, right? Do you expose the elemental primitive functional components and like enable them to be put together like Legos in different ways or do you kind of flatten everything and you know have big wide you know kind of micro systems within the thing that try to do a lot of things well and it's 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 something you'll kind of find in every like subdomain of of software design is like this trade-off between tools that do one thing well or a collection of very small, sharp tools that you have to be an expert to use, but if you are, you can use them much more flexibly and in combination, building up these pipelines that achieve kind of orders of magnitude more than what the everything in a box that tries to accommodate gotcha. a wide swath of people, but doesn't yeah. doesn't address itself to the experts who are using it in a different kind of order, right? So, it, it, you know, that, just to take a pause from this and connect it to something else that um, you know Claude Levi-Strauss is, is, he's 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 known at least and he's not the first one to formulate it this way but he gives it the phrase the, uh, of bricolage right the the that which is not ready made but made to order and this um, it's it is ad hoc but the, there's that restriction is actually it's is a positive rather than a negative. It's it's precisely that which is at hand that forces the inventor forces us to invent, 
in a certain way um, that doesn't necessarily go by stock formulas. And that seems to be why what we are capable of with bricolage it does take a, a finesse and, and an expert and um, and precisely you can you can do more by kind of um, thinking outside of the standard what what is seemingly possible you know from within uh, those confines so okay that makes sense the the general and the special and and you were bringing this up in light of what you were going to get to or setting up this interesting idea of a of, of a of a non-Turing pathway for considering the halting problem to get back to what where where we started with um, and you phrase it basically in this this notion of what can it com- what can a computer think uh, can you can you say a little bit about what you what you mean by that like a and, and I don't I don't recognize that as something what can a computer think uh, well what is the maybe the um, it's it's the it's the possibility of what in line of thinking here is in line with computation right this this question of um, this so I, I feel like it's Dijkstra or something and again I feel like I'm just handing platitudes at you but like so something about the question of whether a computer can think is about as interesting as whether a submarine can swim right we're, we're talking about Funk, fun, fundamentally different kinds of things. A submarine swimming, but it's like a semantic distinction at some level, right? Like it comes, it comes back to what you mean by what's thinking and so on. At, at least insofar as we're staying at this basic question of whether a computer can think, which it should be obviously yes, but and the only confusion is about, is really at the semantic level. And yeah. but uh, but I'll, here, here's what I'll get at, right? I I think you know that there's a. a a mutation possible here that with the the brain and computers together can come up with new languages that enable us to think much more broadly and deeply than our current again anthropoid you know way of slicing up discourses and disciplines achieves right we can we can see a trans differentiation a learning and healing on the part of you know whole the, or the, the at the cultural level possibly that can be the computers can help us like potentially think more clearly I guess would be one way to one way to approach it, but I, I don't know how that links together with some of the concerns about clarity and distinctness of thinking. And, and I, I think when you said when you said it offhand, you may, maybe you meant a, a different word, but I, th- I saw it in context of this, the way uh, you were formulating possibilities of dealing with halting problems, um, and. And so it was about uh, providing these solutions that seem impossible from the from Turing's aspect. And you, um, I think it's this is kind of why I was bringing up the special and the general because of right, right. The, what, what what would you? I guess for me, when when you 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 put it in the context of a Gerdelian space time, and and I'm not familiar with his uh, dealing with Einstein's. So relativity. Can you say something about Girdle uh, gives Einstein? Yeah. I think it's a like a birthday present, basically. Okay. He, he's he, he's one of the very first people to solve Einstein's equations. Because so what Einstein does is not he doesn't he isn't even able to solve the equations for general relativity that he formulates that that analyze existence as a four dimensional Minkowski space time 
where space and time are basically aspects of a higher dimension. And so, like, this is such a mind-breaking thing that he can't even quite find solutions to it. And, indeed, the first solutions that are found are themselves pretty mind-bendy, right? It's Schwarzschild, who you probably know, right, comes up with a solution, and it's a black hole, right? We don't have the word yet for the crazy gotcha. sing singularity yeah, right. thing he discovered when he solved these equations, but it's it's what we found. And then Gödel, because he's loves having fun, right, comes up with a solution where space and time are all are bent at right angles to each other, it feels like, where your past and future aren't differentiable or aren't discernible in the same way, or, or at least that there's these, like, potential world lines available to every observer where they could be potentially observing events sort of in the future, in the past. Right. It really puts the directionality of time in question. Um and as we've seen in black holes, the directionality of time becomes a plane where you can almost move as though it were a spatial dimension in time because time and space change their roles in a black hole, become time-space. Um, but yeah, anyway, Gödel provides solutions to these space-time equations that Einstein comes up with. And in Gödelian space-time, which at, at some level I'm not sure we would be able to rule out that we don't live in a Gertelian space-time, right. at least at some scale, right? right? Yeah. So, I, again, it's like, I, but, but I, you, I, I'm not necessarily an expert on this stuff, but like, there, there, yeah. are, there are these like, potential constructions of the structure of the universe where there would be, for a computer user interacting with a Turing machine, there would be a world line where the computer user, taking only a finite amount of time, could interact with a, a computer that has taken that has, has been basically taken an infinite number of steps that is a, that has been able to solve the, the halting problem, um, and so you can potentially imagine using black holes as a computational substrate here, taking advantage of the the distorting, you know, sort of of space and time in some useful way for computation. This is all very speculative. It's not like we're about to set out and try to do this, but it's at least conceivable that it potentially advance you know like alien civilizations might have done this maybe black holes are a good place to look on the other hand maybe they're a good place to get torn apart by kind of you know insanely powerful tidal forces right but yeah and i i also was asking about the general purpose machine because uh, i was i was looking forward to when we get to talk about turing machines uh this is so essential understanding the non-Turing aspect. So, so would a Turing machine be definable as a as a, as a a simple what 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 would you describe it as um, for our purposes? Because you it, you're you're kind of saying that Turing doesn't necessarily foresee uh, this this type of solution at the introduction of sort of a black hole kind of thinking of space and time for. In the way maybe uh, Gödel provides a way for um, the halting problem. So, uh, I mean, the, the Turing machine. I'm tempted to say there's almost something enigmatic about it, even though okay. it's like easy to specify its behavior. But I mean, suffice to say that you know, for the most part, scientists and again, I think largely philosophers and mathematicians, right, take take the the sense of computation to be defined by Turing's picture. Right of of computability, and his I, and again he's he's trying to define this mathematical notion of computability, right? Um, 
in order to build real machines, right? Like Turing is an inventor as well, right? There's pure mathematicians like Alonzo Church and who publishes, you know, the Lambda calculus in the, I think it's the same year Turing writes on the halting problem in the Turing machine, right? Fascinating. I could be wrong about that, but like, and they were, they seemed like very different formulations, but they were later proved equivalent, right? Like Alonzo Church is articulating a very, a very pure mathematics of, you know, where the only operation is function application and sort of like in, involuting all the rest of mathematics through encoding in this very minimal kind of language. Um, and it, it ends up being very close to, to how Turing kind of defines the, the, the capabilities of the computer. I mean, wh one way to think about, and it's anthropomorphic, right? But like one way to think about what the Turing machine is, is a human mathematician who doesn't have any insight into what they're doing. They can only blindly follow the, the rules they've been given. Um, and based on, you know, they, they're not interpreting the state of the the their memory this you know what i mean gotcha. they're, they're like gotcha. they're objectively determining based on in themselves a signifying non-interpretable marks it's really the status of the mark that's kind of the interesting thing in the turing because in yes. other words you can define the whole theory of formal computation without ever having to specify that a mark means any particular thing whereas you have to have some interpretation of the computer as say performing a verification of Schwarzschild's equations for black holes, right? You have to have some idea, some, interpreta gotcha. some interpretation of the behavior of this thing. If, if only in order to say it miscomputed, this, this value is wrong in its, you know, in, in what we, in the information we put into it, so it miscalculated this thing, or we gave it all the correct information and the program was wrong, or we gave it the information, the program was wrong, and something broke in the mechanical apparatus, a cosmic ray intersected the memory, yeah, right. and it miscomputed that way. So there's a couple different varieties of miscomputation that a, that a philosophy of computer computing computability has to account for. But again, it's sort of strange to think about miscomputation, and if, if we're granting that, that there's no you know, determining interpretation of the marks on the tape that in themselves they're they're meaningless. Or at least yeah. you can you can formally define these theories of what they're doing without assigning them. I mean this is what Saussure would call the arbitrariness of language, except that I wonder I've wondered if a it's way close. Which, yeah. Like, well I, I guess it's it's that it's it's the way in which it's um as you said it's the mark and the what was it? It was the scanning of the tape and the the marking and the the unmarking, so right. that, those are the and and the fact that different people have different linguistic encodings of the world, right? Like it it, it does do this thing. You're saying that the the sign itself is not signifying, right? It's the play of the sign within this larger structure. That's right. Yeah. That we can construct an interpretation that renders it signifying, but that's not the same thing as the sign itself signifying. I guess unless you're like. I don't know, using the sign in a different way, right? Like, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think that this is what this is what Guattari tries to get into by rigorously distinguishing uh, between semiology and semiotics. Um, he wants to try to, you know, show how, in essence, signs 
do uh, that, we, that that what he that we, you know coming from this lineage of linguists in the French tradition from Saussure throughout how Lacan deals with the signifier um, specifically I think in, in contradistinction to to what is being circumscribed of signification there that he that you know um, and at the limit, I think Deleuze and Guattari themselves talk about this in A Thousand Plateaus about signs, particles, right? At, at the limit, there's a, there's a particulate aspect uh, of the sign that doesn't involve um, what, we, what we consider language doing. And uh, this is why I think it's, it's necessary for them to be rigorous about distinguishing between a code and a language and how codes can work otherwise than through the sort of more um, macro, transcendent, presupposed um, mobilizations of language. Um, I mean, we had an episode called What the Dream of Esperanto. Right. There's a different aspect there to try to make every encoding singular um, and purposeful to erode and, and really suspend and get rid of the arbitrariness of a language. What it, what, what if there were a language? But it's ineradicable. I'm tempted to say there's a Godelian response here that the arbitrariness is an ineradicable feature of any interesting of any informal system rich enough to describe a world sufficient for conscious beings to interact usefully. Yeah, and with, and the arbitrariness that. doesn't go away. It just gets taken up to the <laughs> meta linguistic level right. by those by the creators. There's what does it mean to have conscious creators of a of a language? That's right. that's a new. But th this is the thing that I, I'm trying to get at. That, yes. that brains and computers together could construct a better a better language in this way. I think this is maybe a way to re re, you know realize dream as, of Esperanto is to talk about you know the possibilities for new for new languages in the future, um, or at least I don't know for the for the AI driven deepening of language. I, yeah. don't, I don't know exactly what that means. but There's something interesting about a, a constructed language like Esperanto. Because yeah. it's not a lived language, its, its regime of signification is actually extremely minimal. Um, it doesn't... The way that language... I think the territoriality of language, of native tongues, of mother tongues, they have a sweep of the of the soul in in, in terms of their significant significative of the, of the soil of the soul, the soul. Uh, they have a you know they have an every everyday resonance not now most words are and it's not not even sometimes the linguistic concept itself it can be the inflection in a voice and etc etc i guess there's something lived about language in the yeah and that is cumbersome when we get down to the uh, element of of what codes do in encoding that all of that the terror there it is a deterrent if if it if it came from the help of language it's completely deterritorialized from its function of signification of communication um but that's where it gets its power from right that's that's its but yeah what's this other thing what's this other thing the sign can do i feel like this is the aporia I was caught up in as well because it's like you can do something else than interpret the the memory of a computer, but it well it does I, I it helps us set up a series a chain reaction a, an internal resonance as you're saying the sign freed from signification is what's at stake in 
the marking and unmarking of right. Of you, a you're making me think there's the minimal sign of a, of a variable. Sign. Right. Oh, yes. Okay. Which Good. Sta- which stands for like a, right. a mutable quantity. And and note this isn't like a particularly mathematical way to think about like a value, right? Like if you were assigning a value in mathematics in general, it's a static. It's something that's not right altering. Right, you have a different notion for like a flexion or something that's very, but in but in at least declarative languages, right? Like you're gonna, that's you're, right. You're gonna do x equals x plus one. You're gonna be taking something and changing the state of it, and it doesn't again in itself have to signify something. You can give it a label, but that's not right. the, that's not that's just assigning an interpretation. That's not the same. I don't know. There's there's a subtle distinction here, I think, between the sign and signification, and I'm not sure. Until I had this conversation with you right now, that I ever appreciated how how subtle and like how it applies to both sides of the the bifurcation of like the human sciences and the right kind of hard computer. Well, I, I mean, in a certain way, at a certain level, isn't the the computer programmer the one to truly be able to say differently than Humpty Dumpty, like? Words, i.e., yeah. uh, strings of characters mean what they say and hear mean, perform and say, function. You know, when they when I say them. So that's it's kind of the ideal of the programmer, right? Is able to yeah take arbitrariness at, in insofar as it it's not chaotic. It can perform in a in a collaborative... And it, it can become yeah. an expressive medium. That's right, it can become expressive. There's something yes. very close to the heart of being a programmer, or like a, a it, it's it's writing an interpreter, right? You're writing a tiny little microcomputer that you give it instructions, mm-hmm. and it takes some action, right? Yeah. It's, it's this basic thing about, about abstraction, but in taking a line of code and parsing it according to a grammatical tree... And then synthesizing the elements down into a series of commands. Yes, right. And then executing those commands in a virtual machine and then returning the result, right? That's what an yeah. interpreter is. And I, and I it's think, a, it's yeah. a simple way to implement a, right. a, new, a new programming language. And you so, can, in, yeah. in the distinction between languages, which are ruled by order words, and in code, as, as in terms of uh, programming in all of its senses, both technical and genetic, uh, it's. Uh, command words or command phrases using that phrase in the most general sense and talk about instruction sets yeah. in that sense do you think now here's the here's a computer programming question then is the notion of a computer language does that does language need to be sort of put in in, in uh, quote quotation mark scare quotes to, to what about dream like a neuric language or corporate language or all these I mean the language you speak is 17 different languages right and there's what about mathematics is it it's an extension of language it's a monstrous jargon Com- computer science is a subset of mathematics in that sense yeah so it's our computer a, languages it's, it's, it's one jargons in the sense in which uh, what mathematics is a crazy slang as Deleuze and Guattari say like is that they're constructed languages that like that computers can also read they're highly formal they're they're regular in certain ways that that make them amenable to structural processing gotcha. and parsing right and so in the order word though it's interesting that it's not about what as Wittgenstein shows it's not about what uh, is meant by the the phrase it's what is what kind of performance extra linguistic performance is involved uh, what is it what is it doing what is it uh, 
How does it also? How does? Um, no, you're, you're making me think the signs of yes. mon- a monad this way that it's only its effects on other things that in itself it's nothing, right? Like. And of course, what's the, I forget his name? Austin gets. I think his name is Austin gets taken up in the. Uh, I think he he wrote a book, famous book called "Doing Things with Words." Yeah. And um, it's prim- primatics. And French is translated as saying and doing. Huh. And it's. Um, this is, I mean, this is a, the very famous example they give is about uh, the judge declaring, you know, you're guilty, yeah. or, um, you know, or the priest pronouncing, you know, I do by thee wed, or however it's, I forget how it goes, but, you know, I, I call, I'll call you man and wife. Um, there's a performativity, uh, these performances these performances are, that are inherently linked to what the words are doing they can't be understand apart from them the pragmatic this I mean Guattari and we'll talk about this as the realm of pragmatics which he says was kind of for a while uh, I think was it Chomsky or who, who calls it it's the waistband of of language um, I think is the phrase it's, it's, it's where think, Chomsky would like to relegate pragmatics to is that what you're saying yeah that it, and, and and to do that I think for Guattari is really to say that what linguists were interested in, in was bracketing political power yeah as though they could separate it out from what language is and does so what they were really looking at was an ideal formation of language an idealized form taken out from what it Language taken out from what it actually does, which right. is again one yeah. that would be realized in computers and computer languages. Yes, good. And right. This is again the reason for the symmetry just between the human sciences and the the formal yes. language computer science. They both use Chomsky in much the same way to do analysis of strings of text that we want to break up into meaningful chunks and put into a big tree and have it all descend from a single point of significance and meaning and try to thereby derive the series of commands that we should undertake. Yeah. Whatever. And and, and so, also this is funny, this is why Deleuze and Guattari take up, this is where they get the term abstract machine from Chomsky and the really linguistic, uh, and his, his work on linguistics, the generative, yeah. the generativity, the generativity um, the, of gram, generative grammars. Right, but Watery uh, says, you know, I'm going to keep this term, I'm going to use it differently, but, you know, you could also call them machinic extracts. Um, he's playing That's off cool. of the etymology yeah. of abstract and extracts, and it's, it's in that sense, it, it um, allows us to forget the Chomsky, if, 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 one, if it resonates in one's mind, that, oh, that's from Chomsky. I mean, I think for us today, we don't... You and I probably wouldn't. I think in the time that they were writing in the seventies, that that was very. I would probably say in France that was pretty hip for the. I've got a copy of On Language on my shelf. It's funny. I've sure. got it near a thousand plateaus because they spend so much time talking. It's <clears throat> D and G have made Chomsky relevant for me be, because of their deep engagement. I know that sounds right, funny, but yeah, he's also, he also happens to be important as a as a if you're interested in computer in computer languages and grammars, right? But. Right, and so you were saying that it shows the relation between the human sciences and the computer sciences, especially because of the, I think that they use, what, this, what they program, use literally the same theory is my point. Right. What, yeah. what is it that uh, I mean? What Deleuze asks is there a lequendum? Is there, uh, you know, what is the transcendent exercise of language and language taken to its limit? Um, and I think that that's what programming shows. Uh, language taken to the limit. You know, we it. Pre- can produce effects in the world right yeah it can produce that are divorced 
ideally from, or I, not ideally, but you know, that are divorced from there. Um, this is this is the question. What does the sign do if it doesn't signify? Because I would say in signification, yeah, it seems like it's less than anything. It, at but that, you at that point, right? but you said it it, it it doesn't signify, and precisely because it doesn't signify, is much more nimbly able to express depending on its function. Yeah. So signs in the mathematical and the programming sense uh, don't signify; they express. They yeah. nevertheless express. That's the and that's where I think the operator comes in. Right. They express it to someone with insight to interpret it. Yes. And this it's, is the... It's, it's, a, yeah. it's the social function of, of names and labels for the tape that is otherwise un, effectively yes. in an uninterpretable mess of circuitry, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so I guess the, in that sense, in the Caesarean model of language, there is a, an emitter and a receiver in this very reduced sense, and I think that that is to remind us of the agencies of, uh, of lived, embodied humans yeah. in human history and human society with all of that. Uh, but, but the question in computers, I, I guess you call it an anthropomorphic metaphor that we have to deal with and that, that still right. persists, but I guess I would bring up... Well, we, I brought up earlier that... We, we get the name computer from a human profession. Right, and so uh, I brought up the notion of this non-reflexive agency the right and the other word the other word i used just a minute ago was operator i think that's the interesting yeah. thing this computer, it's a non, computer user it's a, at the limit it's a non but at the very basic it's it's a transhuman operator that the human is is ideally bracketed out um husserl might say bracketed in the in the epoche it's there's able to be this transcendental reduction of, of the human um, that I think Laurawell calls radical eminence. This is man in person. It's um, just as the notion of God had to be rid of its transcendent formulations as a bearded man in the sky, there's something that still persists that's harder to, but just as um, subsistent in the... Our, our sort of anthropomorphic spontaneity, one could say. You're the saying, residue of anthropomorphism. As, as in, in our idea of computation. I, oh, no, no, no. I, I, guess, I guess just in all form, that That's sure. a natural consequence of language. No, no, totally. And, even, and you're trying to say that even computer science, it, 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 the human can't be fully gotten rid of, but it needs to be what, an effective simulation or a simulated effect, or it has to take on different coordinates. I mean, it, it, it's it's helpful just as a systems designer if you're thinking about I've got this big dis uh, right. distributed problem to imagine your programs are like little people in a village who do one job, but all together they, they achieve the big task, if that makes sense. It's even better if you can make it like just a pipeline and everyone just does one narrow little operation that feeds in from the one before, and, and you can make each of those individually very simple. Um, and this is abstraction, right? You want to compose complicated behaviors out of simple ones um, and not have to recapitulate all of the complexity. You, you want to be, and this is expressiveness, right? Like at the highest level, you want to say in a short declarative way, right, the structure of a problem. And you want to be able to say it in a, you know, in, in a way that respects the, the rationality of all the relationships involved. And like, 
it, it can itself unfold a bunch of stages of work, but you you didn't say much. You just said a tiny a tiny bit. Um, these were like brevity and wit or something. Yes. Right. Like that. There's a and this is maybe where the power comes to me because it's like you've got a tiny little point at the top, and what does a parser? What does a computer do? It picks it up. It explodes it into all the little pieces. And then, like slowly, as as each of the different work orders comes through, begins assembling it back. You're like dynamically building new machines to build new machines to build new machines. This is programming. <laughs> this is this is the sense of you, you're you're constantly building the tools to build the tools, and it's a kind of a you're you're is that is that a part of uh, its fractality? As Laro might talk about it on the maybe it's I mean in my head it's more Munchausen and just boots bootstrapping problems right are endemic in computers like how do you how do you start a computer from nothing right and which which order do you start all the pieces and uh, you know how do you how do you boot the system into this mode where it's like running freely and able to dynamically interpret new input. Right, like it takes a lot of layers of abstraction to build that ideal right. platonic world where I can summon realities with short phrases, and you know. Well, I mean, would you say it's because that that uh, this question of commencement is um, both relevant for computing and for you know Deleuze's question at the beginning of the Image of Thought chapter in Difference Repetition, he's asking the same question: what? You know this problem of beginning yeah. for philosophy. It's always been this. Uh, I mean, you see Descartes trying to take us back on these first these these meditations and leading up to the uh, to formulating these 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 progressive steps that thinking can take. Um, it's about origins. It's about how to begin, what to begin with, what are the presuppositions, and you can see this the basis of. What like Euclidean mathematics and beginning? Well, we have to, to begin. We have to axiomatize, or we have to we have to come upon the axioms somehow. Right? right. And like, what are the axioms for a formal system that's also open and capable of encoding any function I can imagine? Yeah. This is sort of the bootstrapping problem, and the limits of those functions, no matter how you define them, end up defining the halting problem just begin the problem of beginning the problem of ending whether you know and it's, it seems to me to have something to do with what Deleuze talks about that it's a positive aspect if your research project is not determined in advance you need to be open to the encounter you need to be constructing yes. situations in which you encounter something but that also precisely means it's undecidable in advance and you have to actually go through the exercise of it right. and it's possible that it's interminable and if you haven't analyzed it ahead of time, right, it, it may just run forever, and you can no longer tell the difference between have I just not found it or has it right. not finished yet. This and is yeah. This is interesting to think about in the context of God. You know, in the in the, in the old, I think in the Judeo-Christian and probably uh, probably in the just the monotheistic understanding of God as as creator. It, the as though fate, the end, and the beginning were predestined. And th this way of thinking about um, operators of computers and the... I wrote something down earlier about, um, you know, this the agency that... What if there were a god who were open to the encounter of sort of the, the endless... Um, 
deviation from any sort of notion he might have had in his head, uh, sort of letting things play out, this absolute affirmation of chance, what if there were a God who gambled? You know, I mean, I this is, in this a different is, sense than Einstein said it, right? But, but it's also, that's what general relativity spells out, is that gotcha, yeah. the, the universe's space and time are one thing, and they right. began at once, and it's all unfolding according just to universal law, which is not the same thing as in somebody watching over you. It's the op- as a divine will, it's, it's, as a theodicy. Well, right. It's the opposite. It's it's yes. thro- it's thrownness. We're, we've been right. thrown into this unfolding drama that, and our 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 fatum is predetermined in the sense that we're mortal, right? But and that ent- entropy will swallow swallow life at the end of, at the end of everything. Well, this is kind of the. <laughs> This almost this interesting question of, from Spinoza's point of view, God is cause in itself, cause right. of itself, not uh, alienated in its effects. God is always surprised, and yet not surprised, always surprises itself um, with the throws of the dice that it cast. Um, it's this you know, paradoxical. Uh, we exist because God permitted error in his perfect equation. Right, because, and that's only error on the level of sort of the, the correlation of the modalities, but not an error of substance in itself, which right. is impossible. No, and substance whose mode is pure variation. Exactly. And, and like endless experimentation, at least, I mean, this is, I think, what yes. we have to think about in terms of vitality, but in terms of like inhuman modes of reason... I think also have have the I mean think the the intelligibility is the is the same way right like that there's a there's an open plane right of possible developments possible ways of constructing a, a psychoblast and having it evolve and I, I, I don't know there's a right there's a genome for thought for the transcendental um, like a, a, a and there's there's or at least the transcendental is capable of of mutations, and I think maybe just to circle back, this is what linking computers in the brain to form new languages is. I mean, like this, this would foretell certain kinds of fundamental mutations in the image of thought, if if not its erasure, according you know at least under according yes. according to certain practices conditions. This is well, that's what Deleuze is looking for in right. repetition. Is is this what is uh, what is thinking? And its institutionalization in philosophy without an image of thought. It's in- institutionalization. Um, well, it's it's a question of I think for Deleuze being um, clearer and clearer, co- sounding out those idols, uh, yeah. those transcendent idols in the history of philosophy that that relegates difference to um, to an epiphenomenon when in fact it is the primordial element, and. Sketching out the eight postulates that philosophy puts forward to uh, sort of either to bracket difference or to not deal with it head on, uh, castrate it before um, sort of encapsulating it. In any sense, um, you know, Deleuze is looking for how can philosophy if if it can acknowledge crown anarchy in that sense it also yeah. puts its own one of its own 
deepest and most intense inspirations, which is we we talked about earlier uh, at lunch. We talked about the spontaneity, this this bracketing the spontaneity of philosophy also it allows for it to not necessarily be invested in its own sure philo- you know I don't know who you'd call it but it's it's invested in its own speculative interest right, right. Um, I mean Khan himself in the well, the first preface to the critique talks about metaphysics as a battlefield and it's it's it is this it's as though reason had its um, had its advocates on different sides that, that so went Deleuze to battle. Make, Deleuze, Skept, what skepticism and dogmatism, for example. Deleuze makes fun of him for this. He says, yeah. Kant behaves like a justice of the peace thrown onto a field of, like a pitched field right. of battle. Right, right. But, um, but, but look, you brought up differentiability in the, in the, yeah. I just want to maybe link it back to computation because this sure. is like one of the, like I'm whispering of a, like a very early dream of computer scientists that like programs could be differentiable, right? And fit into a differential system, it it would be a you would have this. Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly exactly how to ex, ex, explain it in full, but like, d- differentiability would allow for a level of composability that that goes beyond that that philosophy of operating systems I was talking about, where things you you build a bunch of specialized functions sort of into the milieu, and then you can ad hoc compose them as needed to form certain kind yeah. of pipelines. But if everything was, if all the tools were in themselves differentiable, you could like fold the tools into each other. Right. Like it would be a, it would be like a quantum revolution. And again, this is where I think we actually, we basically need like powerful AI to work with us to build new languages that are capable of this. Like a fully differentiable operating system is like un, unimaginable for human programmers to build. I think. Um, but it would it would have all these like superpowers at like compared to ordinary software. But I'll, I'll just leave it there. And that's like, again, this is strictly within the realm of Turing for what it's worth. This is just would be like radically more efficient programming techniques, right? But this is, I don't know, potentially future programming stuff that it seemed like we were kind of converging on. Right. So. I mean, one of the ways that Heidegger gets taken up, I think, um, is uh, in the, immediately in the, in the 60s, especially, I see this. You see it somewhat with Stiegler later, but also earlier with someone like Hubert Dreyfus, who's thinking Heidegger being in the world, Dasein, in line with a uh, kind of transhuman cybernetic uh, aspect. And I think that the computer programming takes this even further and on a modular, molecular level uh, that the, the anthropomorphic metaphor that subsists, the operator, um, is this residue that one could, I think, call, you could analyze its Dasein in the sense that Heidegger does. Um, there would be a phenomenological aspect. And I think as you showed, it's, it's, it, is, it comes back to the, the capacity of putting into question. And you talked about it earlier, about a, a kind of a seeing without seeing um, this, this blind reading that um, the program allows for that that um, that may seem paradoxical, may seem oxymoronic at right. least, 
But it's, um, I think it's similar to the, the thing I said earlier about the sign not not signifying. It's it is it's not a paradox per se, but it's it's just an oxymoron that. Yeah, I think it goes back to the particular, the particulate nature of the sign. That, in other words, some people talk about doing a literary analysis with computers as distant reading. Um, Yes, right. In other words, certain features of the work only emerge statistically through analysis of the particulate kind of flows that they represent. The particles being single words, right? And the base, the, and based on the questions we have, the program answer, right? We, we, yes, we get right. that's part of the human, right? Is what Deleuze talks about. Um, real learning involves being able to turn real power too in learning. Um, resolves in the in the power of, in the hands of those who get to formulate the problems. Yeah, and why he distinguishes that from what we would see, I would assume, in our public education in America, you know, going through high school is the only on the most abstract levels with the with the kids, would the student get to formulate the problems and the question. Ideally what is being taught is is the the capacities to solve questions and problems and hopefully and then they are crowned as an adult to within the limited means given and they get to determine their own problems and um, but for the most part, that kind so real learning doesn't does it, we're, we're almost, it's almost like all of school was actually not to have us learn, but to prepare us for learning, and usually in a cynical type of labor market where we're, we're making workers, et cetera. But right. that's on another. No, 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 but I mean, you're, you're posing this question of like the phenomenon of like the, well, one, just like how, how broken pedagogy is in the first place and how I didn't mean to bring that smooth up. Smooth over the asperities of individuals, but like, I mean, I think there's something, there's a singularity here around the phenomenology of learning and how we we bracket off a bunch of things that we don't understand about it that are currently like black boxes and consciousness right. itself is still a black hole to us. But I think like com- computers foretell in this, just from a, like from a Nietzschean perspective, right? Computers are pointing to this thing of where human culture itself is going to get decoded and then it'll be DNA and then it'll be the brain right like it's it's coming right we're we're these are these are material systems that are can become subject to formal analysis and there's many equations whose solutions are chaotic that we now have fairly right. are able to use in cybernetic and feedback control systems and so you know consciousness is going to be reduced to an effect and there's going to be a bunch of people's names who are associated with these various effects or these faculties and we're going to be able to or yeah. orient cognition otherwise, right? Like, and I think this is really the the challenge for philosophy is to say what shape thought should be or something. There's like almost an ethical problem here, but I think yes, you you, right. you, you sort of were pointing to it. We have to be able to determine the our own shape for the rational universe we wish to inhabit, right? right. Like, and and so. When I brought up Deleuze and the and the who gets to determine the problems, you know, has the power and that's somewhat limited and, and lesser and maybe maybe in standardized education, which I think Deleuze would say is not true learning. I also you could see it in almost a humorous sense because in the preface to the work, he'll kind of say he's he's of a generation perhaps 
towards the end of the last generation that's schooled in the yeah. the old he he basically calls it old school history of philosophy learning that he's he's gone through this grueling program under these very influential philosophers who are training him to to uh to deal with the old problems yeah. and I think that you can see it you see the Deleuze in this sense pointing to yes and the problem is to, the point of true learning is to foster learning and not just knowledge I think that's part of it he's he's been given he's been trained in the knowledge in the, in the study of the old problems to then put forth that hey what, what we need to do is give uh, is it, be clear about what's at stake in forming good problems and imposing good questions, how that is separate from, you know, the propositionality of sense, etc. I, I mean, I, I think Deleuze really is very relevant in this time of where I think it's pretty clear we're seeing that computers are foreshadowing our dark precursor of some mutations in the image of thought. And I, and I really do, I, re right. I really do hope the 21st century will be, will be more Deleuzean than not. But, um, well, the 20th century is supposed to be Deleuzean, as Foucault once quipped. But uh, <clears throat> yes, perhaps the century wasn't ready yet.